The citizens of Earth would get an extra Christmas present this year as their planet orbited through the tail of the comet. We're talking Night of the Comet. Hit it. It was 1984. Huey Lewis sang about the heart of rock and roll. Miami Vice debuted. And two sisters in Chicote fought zombies and scientists in a deserted city. I'm your host, Jerry D., with another episode of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, we got it covered. Now, joining me is a Totally Rad Christmas all-star. From Holly Jolly Exmasu, it's Scott Leopold. Scott, how's it going? Hey, hey, Jerry, it's going well. <laughs> That's good. Uh, it's always glad to hear your voice. Um, I really enjoyed our last conversation when we talked about, uh, um, you know, Christmas Island. And so I'm glad to have you back. Yeah, I'm glad, glad to be here. How have you been? Uh, not too bad. Been, uh, been hectic, but we're, uh, we're dealing with things. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And I mean, at least it seems like things are kind of moving in the right direction as far as the pandemic goes. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll continue in that direction and things will kind of loosen up a little bit and be able to see some loved ones and friends more often, I hope. Oh, yeah. You know, when I, I remember, I think it was around Christmas time. I don't know if it was Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And uh, we were talking about this particular movie that we're covering tonight because I think you said it was kind of a tradition for you, right? Yeah, we, uh, um, you know, several years back, uh, I got the DVD and, uh, started watching it. Hadn't seen it in a few years. Mm-hmm. And one thing I'd forgotten was that, you know, this takes place at Christmas. Yeah. And, um, I have a, uh, what, 35 year or so running battle with my sister about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sitting there watching this, I was like, you know, it, if Die Hard's a Christmas movie, this is definitely a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that, that that kind of started the uh, the annual Christmas tradition of watching this. Nice. So is it Christmas Eve or Christmas Day that you normally watch it? We we just fit it in wherever we can. Oh, there, I got gotcha. There There's quite a few movies we try to hit each year at Christmas, and mm-hmm. uh, but this is this is definitely one of them. Uh, yeah. oh, although but, but, but it's one I'll. I, I went ahead and I got the uh, streaming version on Amazon, so I could just you know hit play anytime I want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know exactly what you mean. I have a bunch of like Blu-rays and and DVDs and stuff like that, and I never watch them because I can just find it easier on uh, <laughs> on Amazon or iTunes or something like that. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, it's so easy to uh, you see them out there, and it's like you know I can rent this for. Five ninety nine, or I can buy it for seven ninety nine. So mm-hmm. we we we've got a few too many movies that we've purchased streaming. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> That's exactly how I am as well. And so there's a few that it uh, it's just one of those things where it, I you know I have it, but I don't feel like getting up and putting it in, and so I end up just renting it or, or buying it again. And so mm-hmm. I have I have the digital copy, plus I have the hard copy. So I, <laughs> I guess I'm really supporting that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought it up, though, to me, because I had forgotten also that this movie was set at Christmas time. Um, and I hadn't seen it, I think, maybe since the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, I remember watching it on VHS. Um, so it this it had been quite some time and then as soon as you mentioned it i i went and saw it and of course they they actually have it on youtube you can watch it on youtube and uh i i think i've seen it like five times now <laughs> it's just so good it's so good well and i i read uh i i i read an interview with um uh mary warrenoff who uh she she's at the think tank and, oh right um, mm-hmm. when she made the movie she you know, um, she was friends with Robert Beltran. They'd been in um, Eating Raul together. Eating Raul, that's right. Yeah, And he basically got her the part. And she said, you know, 
this is just one of those things. She, she was basically doing it for money because she knew that it was a product of its times and mm-hmm. it would fade and people would forget about it in a couple of years. So the fact that, you know, it's held up well, it's got staying power. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a time capsule. It it really (laughs) embodies a lot of stuff that was uh, current at the time, but it honestly, it's a well-written movie Mm -hmm. and um, it's something you can still really enjoy now. Oh, I completely agree. Um, And I mean, it's funny because, you know, it's, it's kind of a, I mean, it's definitely an apocalyptic movie. It's kind of a zombie movie, but they're not really zombies in like the, the traditional sense that we, you know, that we know zombies Um, because a lot of them, they still kind of have their minds. They just slowly, you know, go insane and and their body deteriorates. Uh, Whereas, you know, most zombies that we think about today, like in the walking dead or, you know, day of the dead, things like that. I mean, they're just uh, mindless creatures that just, you know, thirst for flesh essentially. Um, and so it's really interesting because it kind of shows like the process of, of everything, like how they, their bodies are breaking down. And, and that's not something we normally get from, from zombie movies. So uh, I, I really enjoyed that part about it. And that's something that I had forgotten as well. When I was trying to remember it, I really thought that it was just a straightforward zombie flick. Um, and I'd completely forgotten about the part in the mall, which we'll get to. And uh and that the scientists were devolving. I remember the scientists, but I forgot that they were, um, you know, disintegrating as well and, and turning into the creatures. And so there was a lot that I, I didn't quite just remember, but looking back on it and, and now seeing it, you know, several times, it's, it, you're right. It's, it's really, really well done. The soundtrack um, is really good as well. And it's just, everything about it is just quirky and fun and it makes you want to rewatch it. Well, and you know, for, for as important as it is nowadays to, um, you know, have, have diversity and whatnot and in, in casting and in characters, mm-hmm. this was way ahead of its time. I mean, the, uh, you, you've got the, the sisters as the, the main characters, uh, you've got, uh, mm-hmm. Robert Beltran as, you know, the, uh, romantic interest. Um, so it, it, it's something that, you know, there's a lot of 80s movies I'll try to watch with my kids. And, you know, they really criticize them through today's lens. But this is one that we can sit down and watch and they, you know, oh, they really enjoy it. <laughs> God bless you, I, sir. I got four dollars. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so how happened a movie with, you know, two strong female leads that that goes over pretty well with them? <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet uh, for sure. Well, the uh, the director, um, Tom Eberhardt, he also wrote the script. And my understanding is that he actually like met with several high schoolers and and teenagers to kind of get their vibe. And he actually asked them like, what would you do if it was like the end of the world or if there was no one, you know, if everybody disappeared and was just y'all. And I guess that's where he got a lot of the elements from, you know, about the shopping and they'd kind of have fun as well. And in fact, most Mm -hmm. of them didn't even realize that there would be kind of a downside until he mentioned, well, you know, what if there were like no, uh, love interests around and then that's when they kind of started to think oh maybe it's not so great um but i think he took that and he integrated it really well into this horror film because uh, i mean that's the girls have fun you know they go to the mall they they try on clothes uh, i mean that's you know they dance around to music that's exactly what uh, i could see my daughter doing if she was around just you know having so much fun all by herself so it uh, it, it's definitely you can see that, that he took care to really create an authentic, I think, reality for these uh, teenage girls, you know? Well, and it, it, there, there's a lot about it that, um, um, what, one of the things I was thinking about, the one, one, of, one of the things he told the actors was, you know, anything that happens, you know, roll with it. So apparently there's quite a bit of ad-libbing that goes on throughout it. Um, although naturally the, uh, the, the best is actually the best line in the movie, which is, you know, Kelly Maroney's about the, uh, the Uzis. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I think they, I don't think it was expected to, you know, be a, uh, um, a top notch movie when they were making it, mm-hmm. but I, I think a lot of elements came together that, um, it has helped it to hold up 
uh, fairly well today. So, yeah. And it, um, speaking, I mean, you said, you know, what they weren't expecting. I mean, I know it was low budget. I think um, Everhart has said that it was only about $700,000 to make. Um, mm-hmm. Although I think, I believe on IMDb, it actually lists the budget as around 3 million. So I'm not sure which is true or if that includes marketing or not, but I know it made quite a bit. Uh, and so even despite, you know, whether or not their, their budget was 300 uh, or 700,000 or 3 million, I mean, they, they still made quite a profit off of this movie, um, which is, it's fun. And it's kind of a shame that it wasn't bigger, but I, I think the reason, uh, like you said, it's held up and, and done so well um, video wise um, was just because it kind of touched that, that teenage um, feeling. And so, I mean, everything about it, it's, it's most of it. I mean, it's all seen from the point of view of the protagonists, you know, whereas um, nowadays they try to, to show all sorts of different alternatives. And to me, I think by keeping the focus on those female protagonists, especially, I, I mean, yeah. And, and um, Robert Beltran too, but um, by especially keeping it on, on the girls, I think it really makes it just a little more powerful. So yeah, it, uh, it it's definitely fun film. Uh <laughs> <laughs> the the Christmas of it. I mean, I guess it could be more Christmassy, but at the same time, it's it's Christmassy enough. Like there's a uh, jingle bells you can hear in the background. It came upon a midnight clear. Uh, you can also hear in in the background. And I was kind of hoping on the soundtrack um, that they would have had more uh, of, of those tracks. But I know the soundtrack itself did really really well, and I believe it was listed. Um, I mean, I think it was one of the best-selling soundtracks in 1985. I think it was like one of the top, oh, wow. one of the top ten, um, but like by the record label. Um, and so it got like a special some award by the the actual label that produced it because it was one of like their top ten that year. I mean, it's a really strong soundtrack. I, I I've listened to it so many times, and now my daughter loves a lot of them. <laughs> There's a few I won't let her listen to, but uh, the little more risque ones. But yeah, she she definitely loves uh, Trouble, which is done by Skip Adams, who's like a, a producer and um, editor, but he also is a composer. And so he wrote he wrote that one. He wrote another of the songs, um, Strong Heart, although it's performed by someone else. And uh, and then there's like a few songs by Revolver, who I, I don't remember anything by them except stuff from the soundtrack. So, I mean, it, it really did well. And then if you think about like its lasting influence as well, I know that it uh, that I believe Kelly Maroney's character, who uh, Sam, is that her name? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe she inspired uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer by Joss Whedon. Yeah, I, I read that somewhere. Yeah, so that's really cool too. That uh, that this kind of spawned like a whole new genre, <laughs> you know, and and this whole this whole new uh, very lasting uh, um, uh, series and that's well beloved. And so just the fact that it came from this, I know I believe Neil Gaiman also uh, really um, loves this movie. And it just says, you know, it's kind of like a fun romp and it kind of helped mm-hmm. inspired him as well, which, yeah, I definitely could see. Yeah. Well, and I, I also looked up the soundtrack earlier mm-hmm. and um, it, the uh, it, it'll cost you a bit to get the vinyl now. The, yeah. Yeah. The vinyls. <laughs> well, I believe they did in 2019. I think they did a, a re-release of it. Um, and I think it even had liner notes done by Kelly Maroney. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> but no, I just I did the digital iTunes thing. Uh, I I didn't want to hunt it down uh-huh. because yeah, I saw I saw some prices on that, and yeah, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I I got three kids to feed at the moment. I can't do that. But <laughs> I was going to say one one funny thing about this one is that this is one of those we never saw this in the theater when I was a kid. Yeah, um, I didn't either. You know, we we saw the previews. It was one of those things you wanted to see, and it, we never saw it until it hit cable. And as soon as it did, though, it you know, me and my friends would get together and watch it pretty often. Yeah. Um, and then, gosh, we went went years and years without seeing it. And when I saw that the DVD was coming out, I mean, I was there at suncoast or something that you know the day it hit (laughs) waiting for the doors to open (laughs) suncoast do they even have suncoast anymore (laughs) we've got one oh wow nice i haven't seen one in uh, gosh it's got to be about 10 years now 
uh-huh. but as far as the cast goes, because I mean, it's they're not like super famous, but I mean, at the same time, they kind of had their niche, and and this was like right in there. So like Catherine Mary Stewart, I knew her from uh, the Apple. You know, one of those canon films, the Apple, and uh-huh. then of course she was in the Last Starfighter, and uh, and then also Weekend at Bernie's. So that's like how I knew her. But uh, Kelly Maroney as well was in like Chopping Mall and uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where she kind of played the cheerleader as well. So this is like right in their, you know, right in their groove. Um, and, and so I think because they kind of had experience playing characters of this type. Um, that that also that helped just make the movie that more special because they were able to just play into their strengths. It, well, and Catherine Mary Stewart, I mean, '84 was a big year for her. It, this and Last Star and the Last Starfighter, yeah. And, and now Last Starfighter, that's one we saw quite a few times in the theater. <laughs> yeah, I I remember seeing it. I think just the once in the theater, but I remember on cable I saw it a bunch. <laughs> mm. That that was one of those movies that we we actually bought the VHS of that and you know, you didn't, you tended not to buy too many videotapes back then, but that, right. that's one we definitely bought, but we had a, uh, a little budget theater nearby, uh, the Flickr palace. Nice. And if there was a movie we liked, you know, me and my brother, we'd be there with my dad over and over again. So, you know, last Starfighter was one that we saw quite a few times. Karate kid, probably a hundred times. Oh, great. Uh, Flash Gordon, <laughs> <laughs> probably a hundred times <laughs> all those are amazing yeah those are those are so much fun we also had one it was called cinema twin it was right by a, a mr gaddy's pizza and then right next door to that was a movie land video uh which uh not a franchise just you know it was it's one of those little mom and pop uh video stores and i remember so many times we would um we'd go eat at the movie or excuse me go eat at mr gaddy's pizza and then we'd either go to the movies or we'd go rent something from movie land and every once in a while we would do all three you know like we'd make it like a big afternoon evening kind of thing and Mm -hmm. i recall specifically this one time where um where we saw i believe it was the movie's escaping me now uh and and I know it, it's like right on the tip of my tongue. Um, I think it was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So it was 1990. So we saw that, then we went to eat and then we went to Movie Land Video. And I remember renting um, some video games and also um, The Last Starfighter was one of them because <laughs> we watched it like a million <laughs> times. And then also uh, Ninja Turtles, the cartoon. So it uh-huh. was all like all this one big, uh, just this one big event that was just amazing it was an amazing evening <laughs> well and it, not at Flickr palace but an, another movie we saw quite a few times in the theater was uh lone wolf mcquaid which oh wow also had robert beltran and so i haven't thought about that in a long time <laughs> and, and i'll tell you what i have no idea why we saw that so many times because it was it was with my mom Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, Chuck Norris movies. That, those were the kind that she took us to. Well, I think that, that was a canon film, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, they were very famous for their, you know, low budget, shoot it fast, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. And then in that era, like mid, you know, early to mid 80s, they really tried to to turn it around and, and make bigger motion pictures. And I know that they, um, I know that they had signed Chuck Norris for like a multi-picture deal. And they essentially turned him from like uh, just a karate, you know, action star to like a, a full blown action star. So we had like uh-huh. the missing in actions and all, you know, um, invasion USA and stuff like that. Um, and so that wouldn't surprise me if it was uh, if it was by them. I, I haven't looked it up, so I don't recall off the top of my head. But I, yeah, I wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Well, and that's one of those. It, it hit Amazon, and I was like, I've got to watch this again. And I think I watched like five minutes and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll get that. <laughs> <laughs> Some movies hold up better than others. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and this is definitely, I, I really enjoy this movie. I, like I said, I've seen it like five times since, uh, since Christmas when you told me about it. <laughs> uh, it's just one of those. It's so it's fun. It's quirky. And, um, and, and the girls, I think actually do a really good job. Um, in the beginning, and you know, you know, we'll get into the plot, but um, especially the scenes where they're, um, where like uh, Sam is playing off her, I think her name's Doris, her stepmom. Yeah. Um, that interaction was really well done, and I believe that that slap was actually a real slap. 
uh, I think I remember reading that, that they just weren't getting the right reactions that they needed. And so she told, you know, uh, the actress to slap her for real. And so, uh-huh. so she did. And I guess they were, because they had so little of budget, you know, they were trying to like conserve the <laughs> the tape, you know, conserve the film. So they're like, we got to get this in like the next take or two. And so she's like, just slap me for real. And so she did. And it actually is the one used in the film and it works really well. Yeah, well, and I, I like you know, it is whether it was a seven hundred thousand or three million. It, you know, it was a low budget, yeah. but the fact that they were able to get those just empty shots of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, granted, it was you know Sunday mornings and and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, but but still, I mean, it, it looks good. It fits the movie, mm-hmm. and it, it's just well, you know, until last year, it's not something that people would see in real life is, you know, an empty Los Angeles. Yeah, right. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The current events, notwithstanding. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Normally you wouldn't see an empty Los Angeles. <laughs> well, and, and that's, if you read the trivia on it, there's one scene where I guess you can see window washers. And I, I saw something online where people were just ripping the movie apart about that. And I'm like, you know, it's 1984. You don't have the computers mm-hmm. and you've got one shot where there's someone washing windows, you know, cut them a little slack. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I mean, that's just one of the things that happens when you're doing that guerrilla filmmaking type thing, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you just, you take what you can get and sometimes you can edit things out and sometimes you can't. And well, I mean, yeah, you're right. There was no, like you said, no CGI. So it's not like you could just digitally erase them. But at the same time, I think it works. I, I didn't notice them. And uh, I think I remember reading that as well. But I, I've i seen it now, uh, you know, so many times. I, I don't think I, I mean, I still don't know exactly where it is. So <laughs> I'm going to have to go look for it now. I, I saw it one time because I read that trivia thing and I paid real close attention when I watched. And it, I don't notice it since then. I mean, if I know exactly where to look and when, uh, I'll see it. But <laughs> it's not noticeable enough to be a big deal. <laughs> well, I and uh, I mean, same thing. I think that um, the cops in the movie as well. Um, you know, the the they're that are on the cycles. I think they actually were like the cops that were supposedly you know um, preventing people from from passing the, the barrier so that they could get the shots. So, uh-huh. so there was a lot of that, like use as many extras as you can get everything, you know, get everything done just as quickly as you can. So it's, in a way it was very much like the Terminator, you know, where they, they didn't have any permits for certain things and they just kind of had to shoot and do what they could. But I think they, I think they pulled it off because there's a lot of scenes like the, in the elevator, you know, in the store when she's going to the elevator. And, and I, I believe that that was done just like in a basement somewhere. And they just kind of made their own little makeshift elevator because they couldn't, uh-huh. they just couldn't get the shots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it happens. <laughs> but uh, so I, I guess if we want to nutshell this thing, um, essentially a comet that um, was responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs it's its orbit is so large it's uh it's coming back around and while people are excited to see it it actually results in like 99% of the population disappearing essentially and um these two girls and another boy are able to survive um and they just kind of see if they can find anybody else and make it in the world <laughs> That's like the basic well, nutshell. While fighting zombies. While fighting zombies. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and a government think tank. That's yeah. Yeah. There's always, you know, you got to have a, the scientists. <laughs> the, there's always that, that trope now. And it's so famous, you know, where um, it's the end of the world. So let's put all like these important, smart people in, in a bunker somewhere and protect them. <laughs> Except usually when that happens, they don't open, they don't leave the air vents open and <laughs> <laughs> And expose themselves all to to the <laughs> the crazy bacterial <laughs> dust or whatever it is. <laughs> oh man! I, when I when um because I I remember that you know there were scientists in it. I didn't remember exactly how it happened, but as I rewatched it, um, that twist it got me again. You know, I because I, I'd forgotten about it, and I just couldn't believe if these guys were like the smartest and, and they're, you know, this, this, like you said, this think tank, how in the world could they do that? How could they leave the vents open and just expose themselves to that? Like, it seems like there should be some sort of better fail safe for that. Well, but <laughs> the thing that 
that's one of the things that rings true for me because you know I'll deal with like uh, you know the top security people in a, in a corporation oh, and mm-hmm. we'll find out that their password is you know password. <laughs> 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 of all the people. Yeah, they should know better. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh man. Um but yeah, so the main characters are um Reggie, or I guess Regina is her full name, um, who's what like 18, 19, something like that. She's the older sister, and then uh Sam, who's the, the younger sister. And uh Reggie works in a movie theater. She uh has a top score <laughs> on you know Tempest, I believe it was. And, and Tempest was, you know, that was like my favorite. That that and Sinistar went were my oh, two favorite. Oh man, I haven't thought about that one in a long time. <laughs> Tempest, I remember very well. Um, but that mm-hmm. the uh, Sinistar, I don't. I mean, wow, that's literally that's Sin- been years. <laughs> Sinistar was brutal. I never had any top scores in Sinistar. I, I did have not quite as good as Reggie, but I did have quite a few top scores in uh, in Tempest. Oh wow! No, I, the only one I was ever decent at was Cubert. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I don't know why, uh, but that was like the best one. Uh, Pac-Man, I eh, and Joust, no, but uh, yeah, Cubert, I was okay at. <laughs> I did. It, I, we went to uh, Kings Island, which is uh, a, an amusement park near here, uh-huh. and I went with this guy who all he wanted to do while we're at this you know, big amusement park, roller coasters and everything. He wanted to spend the whole day in the arcade. (laughs) (laughs) So I spent, spent like the whole day playing Qbert and I managed to fill almost the whole, you know, top score screen with my initials. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So you were, you were like Reggie. I think they they reset them every day. They probably do. Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't doubt it. Um, but I, I love how we get like the first insight into her character is that she's playing this game. She has like the whole board, except she notices this one spot and it's DMK, you know, mm-hmm. which uh, doesn't really, you know, has doesn't really have bearing on the plot, but does come back later as a nice little cool Easter egg. Um, but the whole point really is just to show that, you know, um, she's determined. She likes to be, I guess, take charge, but she's independent, you know, um, kind of powerful and smart and skilled. And I, I, I really dig that. That's like a cool thing for me, you know, as um, I remember seeing it as a teenager and just being like, wow, you know, and just being so in love with Catherine Mary Stewart, you know, <laughs> because not only was she beautiful, but she also was awesome at video games. You know, <laughs> you know? Well, and something I'm wondering, you know, you, you'll get a lot of movies and shows nowadays where, the kids just happen to have been taught, you know, martial arts and machine guns by their, by their parents. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I'm wondering, was this the first one that really did that? This is the first one that I remember. Um, yeah. Cause I don't even think in commando, uh, Alyssa Milano does anything. Um, yeah. This is the earliest one that I remember. That'd be cool. If this started the trend. Yeah. Well, cause it, at the time it didn't, it, it it didn't really it didn't seem trite at all at the time mm-hmm. which i mean nowadays yeah you're well, right it's all over the place yeah yeah but back then just it, it and the thing it wasn't it wasn't overbearing in this mm-hmm. i mean you know their dad was you know one of he, he was a big military guy he taught him guns and whatnot but it, it wasn't something that was thrown at you constantly throughout the movie so i, I think it just helped to you know, set up the characters a little bit better and give some background as to why they're a- able to get through the movie as well as they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Um, it wasn't every, you know, constantly like them doing, you know, shooting guns all over the or target practice or just anything really. I mean, it's just, you know, here and there and, uh, and that, and I, I love how it's just, you know, a couple of throwaway lines are just like, Oh yeah, daddy, this and this, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, you're, it made it more natural because I actually believe that, um, you know, that teenagers would, would, you know, not flaunt all that stuff, uh, especially teenagers with their, uh, I guess, interests. And so it, it just, it, I, to me, it rang true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Reggie, she works at a movie theater. She's kind of, in cahoots with this other guy they they take the the reels and they bootleg them and they sell the bootleg copies 
and that's how she's able to survive the night is that there she ends up you know staying staying the night with her her partner and they are kind of in like a pr- very well protected um area inside the movie theater that she's working i guess it had to be reinforced in some way um yeah. <laughs> a, a steel line projection booth <laughs> <laughs> You know, I I don't know. It was the it was the eighties. Who knows? <laughs> well, you know, if, if it was an older movie house, you know, if they were used to the the old nitrite film, maybe it was a fire thing. Maybe, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it it moves the plot forward. It does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It does. Of course, we also find out her sister, uh, because, uh, you know, this comet's coming, everybody's excited. So everybody's having like comet watching parties and things like that. Um, Her sister was going to be at a party that her stepmom was throwing, but she gets in a fight with her stepmom about her stepmom's, you know, infidelity. And so she ends up leaving and I forget where she says she stays. It's like in a, in a shed or something, right? Like a steel, like a garden shed, like a steel shed or something. Um, so, you know, I guess those heavy duty sheds, you know, (laughs) just like those projection booths, (laughs) but, uh, so they're both protected in that way. Uh, Robert Beltran's character who we is introduced later on, he's protected because he spent the night, he's like a trucker spent the night in like his, uh, in his rig with like a girl who ends up getting killed or something. Um, another just throwaway line kind of a thing. So they wake up the next morning, Reggie and, and uh, I think the, her guy's name is Larry. And he, you know, he's upset because they needed the film back by a certain time. You know, the canisters of film otherwise, you know, to make sure that they don't get caught bootlegging. And so um, he goes to check. And when she goes to check on him, she finds him dead and being attacked by like this zombie like guy. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, but again, it's not really like a zombie. It's he's, he still has like faculties. He can still speak. Um, he's just kind of crazy. He's got the eyes that are like deep set, um, dark, but, but then the eyeballs themselves, you know, the irises are, are, uh, are, are just very, very bright. And, uh, it's really creepy. Look very violent. She manages to take him out though, because, as we mentioned earlier, she's, you know, her dad is military. And so she's kind of trained up a little bit. And so she's able to take him out. And I thought that was really cool the way she did it too. Let's see. Uh, okay. So then, yeah, the, I, I also love the, uh, the, the hues, like the whole color palette, you know, because the comet um, passed by, there's like a whole, like a reddish hue over everything. Um, the bodies that they find the next morning as you know as they're walking they they find all these little pieces of dust which i you you presume are actually the all the people there that have kind of just been vaporized essentially the whole thing is that this is how the dinosaurs were uh, became extinct is this comet passed by and it just dusted them all (laughs) like thanos you know in avengers infinity war (laughs) well and one of the things i liked is the uh um the dog's leash in the pile of, of dust. oh yeah <laughs> <You're right>. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and and the clever thing about that it it explains away why there's no animals in the movie mm-hmm. so i mean it just shows that you know that that comic got everything which is really creepy um like los angeles because i lived in la for uh for a bit and and just like a, a completely quiet la is just that's that's very unsettling, like very mm-hmm. unsettling. Uh, <laughs> Cause even on, I mean, even on Sunday mornings, um, I remember there being so much traffic and, and just everybody out. So it something, I mean, it, it definitely made me cringe a bit because I, I just remembered my time there and it, you know, wow. So, uh, yeah, it definitely affected me that way, but she just ends up escaping on a motorcycle. She goes back home you know, she runs into her sister who, like she said, spent the night in the shed there. Her sister doesn't quite believe her at first, which I thought was, was also really cool. Cause I totally, again, could see that playing out in real life. And so there were a lot of little things like that, that just really made the movie more uh, realistic, uh, you know, as, as fantastical as it is, it just, it, it kind of grounded it a lot. Um, just that. Well, and the fact that Kelly Maroney's character is just, I mean, she's so focused on, 
you know, cheer practice and everything she's going to be doing with her friends that week. So I, I, I I like how that just completely make, it makes her completely oblivious to what's really happening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause she couldn't, she couldn't find her stepmom. So she assumed that she was just, you know, staying the night at, at her, her lover's (laughs) place, Mm -hmm. you know, and not realizing like, no, no, she's dust. She's gone. You know, (laughs) all these piles of dust. (laughs) That's, that's, people um yeah so um but they hear i i think that's when they hear the radio on right so they like go to the radio station to go check it out uh-huh yeah and so um of course they realize that it's like a pre-programmed um uh, it, it no one's really there there's no dj it's like a whole pre-taped show um now one thing i did know i think he says there's like 11 more shopping days till christmas or something like that yeah. Or 10 more shopping days till Christmas. So uh, presumably this happens around December 14th-ish, December 14th or 15th. Um, so it, and this movie was was released November 16th. So it's like right around the holiday season. I mean, it was like perfect. Um, I can see why it did well. Just because, I mean, it it did have enough Christmas in it that, you know, you can still market it as kind of Christmassy, but at the same time, um, it appeals to that, to, to the person that was tired of maybe watching uh, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, on <laughs> on TV. <laughs> Only so much Rudolph he can do. That's a, yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly right. But uh, that's where, at the radio station, this is where they meet um, Robert Beltran's character, Hector. And of course, both girls kind of like him and, uh, but they're also suspicious of him and, you know, he's got a gun and that kind of thing. And he, um, he mentions about the zombies and how his, his girl was, was essentially eaten, (laughs) which is a terrible way to go. I wouldn't want to be eaten kind of half alive. I think is what he says. (laughs) Uh, See, and that's one of the things I liked about it is it, it does have some, kind of minor parallels to some of the uh, George Romero movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, Night of Living Dead, um, the, the story Robert Beltran tells is kind of similar to um, the, uh, the story the main character in that tells where, you know, he, he's driving along and he sees the, uh, the trucker attack. Oh yeah. And yeah. Then, and then we get, you know, the ball and everything, which at least parallel to uh to dawn of the dead so yeah yeah it, it i mean it's really neat the way that they incorporate everything um and, and like what has taken from them as well and so i i love when you know stories and and different you know uh, comics and, and genres can kind of just do homages to these different um, you know th- their predecessors Mm-hmm. Um, that and I think that's one of the reasons why I love the show Community so much because they did so many uh, homage episodes. So yeah, I like I I, I like you know that story that kind of um, respects as you said um, Night of the Living Dead. Um, and so Reggie, she you know the, she gets on the the radio, you know, s- starts talking, and so the the researchers or, or scientists or the think tank, whatever you want to call them, they hear, they realize they're other survivors, and so they go ahead and send out like a scout team for them. Hector wants to go check on his family. So he does that leaving Reggie and Sam by themselves. And that's when they, uh, they decide to go to the mall. <laughs> Cause what else are you going to do? You know, you can have all the clothes and fancy things that you want. So, <laughs> so they go to the, they go to the mall, they try on clothes, they dance around and they get attacked by, um, by some stock boys. <laughs> which I guess they weren't completely sealed off either because they are half zombie-ish. They're starting to turn zombie or I don't know, however you want to call it. They're, you know, they're starting to devolve, I, I suppose you could say. Uh, and while that's going on, we get Hector back at his house, noticing that nobody's around. And then a little, um, like a little neighbor kid is, is, also feral and, and half zombie. And so he starts trying to attack. And so there's all this, uh, you know, the two different sides going on, which I, uh, again, I really enjoyed because I thought that the, the editing was done very well. Like the, the cutting back and forth between the different things I thought, I thought was pretty nice. Well, and as far as the, uh, the stock boys at the, uh, at the mall, what, 
j- just an amusing uh, something came out of this. I've run into two people who the the, the lead guy when he shoots the guy it shoots his own person. Oh, says, um, Willie, I think, right? Yeah, he, yeah. he says I'm I'm not crazy. I just don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know two people who have stolen that line for either stories or projects they've done. And one, <laughs> I had a friend who was a filmmaker, and he lifted that line exactly for for some movie he did. Nice, and then. Uh, one, one of my, uh, writing classes in college, some, someone had that line. <laughs> it's a good line. I mean, it, you know, I, not only could I see stock boys doing it, but especially, you know, these particular ones that are half zombies. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. It just, it fits so perfectly. Um, of course the girls, they, you know, they also have guns. And so they, they manage to, uh, kind of shoot their way out for a bit until eventually they're just overpowered. And uh, this is when I remember watching it when I was little, really feeling like afraid for them. I thought for sure, like one of them was going to die. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, uh, Kelly Maroney's character, you know, Sam, I, I thought for sure she was gone, but they're, they're tied up and they're saved by the scientists, you know, the researchers, which again, another little great bit where they're, they're, like waiting at the you know, radio station for like, you know, 20 more, 20 or 30 more minutes. And then they say, well, wait a minute, let's, let's think about this. Where would you go if you were a teenager and everyone was gone? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, of course the mall. <laughs> and, and, you know, like every good Christmas movie, Charlie Brown and whatnot, they, uh, they, they have to condemn, you know, consumerism. consumerism yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that line. Yeah. I think they don't, they, they say it's a monument, right? A monument to consumerism. <laughs> yep. Got to do it. That's how, you know, it's really a Christmas movie. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh goodness. Um, but yeah, so they end up, they end up saving them. They kind of do a quick like field test, field evaluation, and uh, they think that um, Sam, because she's got a rash, they think that she's going to be one of the ones that will devolve soon. Um, and at this point, we, I mean, we really don't have any reason to doubt them. So they, they take Reggie off to the base. Sam's going to stay behind um, to wait for Hector with uh, the scientist. And this is, um, um, what's, what's her name? Warrenoff? Uh, Mary Warrenoff. Warrenoff. Yeah, yeah. So, so she's the one that, that you know, volunteers to stay. And, and look after them. And, you know, um, cause at this point, again, we still think that the scientists are good. Uh, spoiler alert. They're not, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we don't know that yet. So, you know, they, we think they're going to kill her, uh, you know, just euthanize her while, while they wait for Hector to, to bring him back. Cause we think, Oh, well, we, in our minds, they're just trying to save themselves and everybody else by having her not turn into, you know, one of these zombies. Mary Warnoff eventually, uh, or um, she pretends to euthanize her. I guess she gives her like a sedative instead. And she ends up killing the other scientist while waiting for Hector to return. He shows up. She has a nice conversation with him, telling him about everything, admitting that, yeah, they, they made a mistake. Now they're all infected and all the survivors that they're picking up, they're actually like harvesting organs and blood and stuff like that to hopefully uh, transplant into themselves so that they have more time to, uh, <laughs> to, to live and, and figure out a cure. But um, she realizes that it's just progressing too fast and there's no way that they'll ever have enough time to find, to figure out a cure. And so she kills herself, but she, you know, she tells them where the base is. And so he goes out to rescue them. Well, and I, I thought I read somewhere that one of the, um, when, when, when she was, when she did get offered the part, one, one of the uh, conditions is that she wanted to write the dialogue for the, the scene with Hector there at the end. Oh, nice. And so. I, I hadn't heard that, but I wouldn't doubt it. Um, because like you said, she did it just for essentially, the, you know, a paycheck. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. I thought she did it really well. Yeah, well, and, uh, and I forget where I read it. Um, I guess at the time, Robert Beltran was kind of up and coming. He 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 had a really good reputation uh, as an actor in Hollywood. Um, and I forget if it was specifically from some of the movies he did or if it was uh, stage work. But um, yeah, apparently he, uh, um, you know, it was before he became Chakotay uh-huh. and, 
you know, nowadays I, I think most people just see him as kind of a genre actor. Yeah. But he he definitely had a a, a positive reputation going into this. Well, I mean, and that could be why he had you know some of the pull that he did have with the director and, and was able to actually convince him to cast um, Warren off as as the part. Because uh-huh. um, usually, I mean some directors and or even just casting directors will just you know say yeah okay whatever and maybe they'll read them or not but you know to actually kind of say no look i think you should i, I really think she'd be great for this part and then having a, the person listen to you i mean that that says something about what kind of clout you might have uh-huh yeah i definitely could see that i mean i myself only really know him from this movie um like you were saying lone wolf mcquade and and then and then Chakotay, that's really it. I, I don't recall anything else that I've seen him in. I really just know, and even then, I mostly know him as Chakotay. Yeah, well, and I, I do remember when, uh, I forget if it was seeing the commercials for Voyager the first time or watching the first episode, mm-hmm. but you know, one of the first things I said when, you know, sitting there watching it with my dad or my friends or whatever, I was like, it's the guy from Night of the Comet. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> so back at the base, um, you know, Reggie's being interviewed by um, the doctor, Dr. Carter, who's like in charge of it all. Uh, of course, he's played by Jeffrey Lewis, character actor extraordinaire. And, you know, he's asking her all sorts of questions. And uh, <laughs> we get the part about, you know, are, are you pregnant? And, uh, or, or, you know, or have you had your period? And, <laughs> And he's like, well, you know, I thought I was pregnant once. Uh, he's like, oh, that's not important. She's like, whatever. <laughs> like, that's the scariest three weeks of my life. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> Again, with the great dialogue. <laughs> um, yeah, so I love that part. But as he's asking her the questions, she she starts to, like, figure or feel that something fishy is going on. And uh, there was two little kids, a little boy and a little girl that um, they rescued with them as well. And um, so she knew they were running tests, but she ends up escaping and not trusting them. She, you know, she manages to, I believe she has a gun with her. And so she, uh, she manages to rescue the two little kids from there, Sam and, and, uh, and what's in it? Hector. I keep wanting to call him Chakotay now. <laughs> Uh, so yeah they end up coming to to rescue them all there's a a cool little explosion you know the scientists uh well let's just say they get blown up (laughs) and then we get the 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 nice prologue where uh you know um everything's kind of been washed away now after after you know the rain and stuff like that and and it's just or, or not prologue epilogue excuse me and um now Reggie and Hector are kind of a thing. They're like a mom and dad to this little boy and this little girl. And Sam, who's kind of feeling left out, kind of rebels. And so as she's crossing the street, you know, believing that no one's there, she ends up almost getting hit by DMK, Danny Mason Keaton. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, you know, alluded to that they're gonna drive off into the sunset and then you know but they got to be back by midnight and that's kind of that's kind of <laughs> how it ends <laughs> it's a cool little wrap-up i mean I, I like happy endings i'm a I'm a sucker for happy endings so uh i know it's not like super happy because just about everybody else has, has disappeared in the world but you know the the protagonists make it out unscathed and um you know they we see couples forming and and they're kind of going to be like a mom and dad to this little girl and this little boy and so I, yeah, I, I like it when things work out so nicely like that. <laughs> That's the Hallmark, the Hallmark movie watcher in me. <laughs> oh man. Um, so yeah, that was the movie and I I loved it. I think they did a great job. Uh, it's got a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes um, out of three critic reviews. It's got great reviews. Variety wrote that uh, Eberhardt created a visually arresting B picture in uh, the neon primary colors of the cult hit Liquid Sky. And then he pointed out some similarities with like, uh, you know, Dawn of the Dead, like we talked about, the Omega Man, stuff like that. Um, I mean, it had pretty good reviews. And of course, it was released on VHS and was like one of the most best, um, the, the one of the most rented VHS films of uh, 85 as well. So, I mean, it 
it did pretty well. And I mean, I can see why it, it made its budget and more, you know, back. Well, and like, like I said, the, the writing was clever. Mm-hmm. The, the acting was good. I mean, the, uh, um, the, the, uh, I don't know if you'd say it was foreshadowing with the DMK on the Tempest machine, but um, ha- having that be who, you know, Sam ends up with at the end. Um, it, it, it was just, just fun. It was well-written. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's one that, you know, I still enjoy it to this day. Yeah, I do too. Um, yeah. So whether, I mean, whether the budget like was 700,000 or 3 million, I mean, it made 14 and a half million. So uh, either way, I mean, of course, if the budget was lower, it, it was more of a success, but either way it was, it was a huge success um, mm-hmm. for this low budget, little indie kind of film. Um, now the soundtrack, I, I want to just talk the soundtrack really, really quickly. So we hear it came upon a midnight clear, as I mentioned before, um, performed by Jerry Shirell. And that's uh, when they're, when Reggie and Larry are making out strong heart, which was written by Skip Adams that I mentioned is, uh, one of my favorite songs on the soundtrack. Uh, we hear that one uh, when she's playing Tempest jingle bells, another one again by Jerry Shirell. Um, we hear that when, uh, when Reggie pulls up at the traffic light, like, you know, when she's like on her way and she's like by the, the Mercedes, that part there. So it's around 20 minutes or so. Trouble, which is another one of my favorite songs from this album. I mean, this is like a really good album. If if uh, you listeners, if you don't do anything else, just like, check out the album because it's really good. There's like nothing really um, well known, but the songs are just um, great songs. They're they're you know just solid and well written. Yeah, and I, I was gonna say I, I was always disappointed that they didn't have the uh, non Cindy Lauper version of Girls Just Want to Have Fun from the movie on the soundtrack. Yeah, I, I was surprised about that too. I mean, that's like their biggest song. I mean, I know she didn't, you know, it wasn't her version, but but that's like the biggest song from you know the the most well known song. Why not include it uh-huh. on the album? And I guess it's probably just a matter of rights. You know, maybe they only yeah. they probably only bought the rights for the actual movie and not for the soundtrack. Um, <laughs> probably would have cost about as much as the uh, budget. <laughs> probably, probably would have. <laughs> I think you're right there. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it makes sense, but yeah, it's kind of a it, it's kind of a bummer. It was a uh, Tammy Holbrook was the one that did it. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, just a, a few others that, that were there. Um, King Country Woman also not on the not on the soundtrack, but you can find it on YouTube. In fact, there's a, a great uh, website called night of the comet blog, um, dot wordpress.com. And they have like a whole section just on the, uh, the soundtracks. You can download the lyrics. You can see, um, you can actually see all the missing songs. You know, they have links to YouTube where all those songs are and it's really well done. Um, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. It's, it's night of the comet blog dot wordpress.com. And yeah, so that's that's how I learned all the lyrics to uh, some of those songs. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um, but it does make me wonder, Scott. Um, like, what would you say would be your hap hap happiest moment um, for watching this? Honestly, I'd say when I was a kid, um, I forget who I was watching with. I, it had, had to have been with friends, and it, it was like the first time I saw it, and. The morning after, when um, they're still in the uh, projection booth, there's a poster for Red Dust hanging on the wall. <laughs> and we had watched that like the year before in grade school. We had watched it in class. Oh, wow. And as soon as I saw that, I knew exactly what it was. I got the reference. And uh, <laughs> it, I, I just got a huge kick out of that. And, and I mean, it, it, it's a great reference in the movie. I mean, everyone turns to Red <laughs> That's so they've got this old, you know, Clark Gable, uh, I think Carol Lombard movie. Uh, they've got the poster hanging on the wall just as a, you know, an extra little bit of, uh, you know, foreshadowing or <laughs> yeah. um, just a little kind of a nod at the, uh, at the audience. Yeah. It, um, it's a good little Easter egg. Yeah. <laughs> but that, yeah. The first time I saw that, that was, you know, as a, what, 12 year old kid catching a reference like that. I, you know, I, I, I got a big kick out of that. That's cool. For, for me, I think, um, I, I mean, I think it would have to be when I saw it and seeing um, Catherine Mary Stewart in it. And I had seen the last Starfighter so much more, you know, so many more times than I'd seen this one. 
And I remember seeing her and just being like, that's the girl from the last Starfighter. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, yeah, yeah, seeing her uh, play video games and just being awesome, you know, she she could shoot, um, you know, she was like taking charge and, and I mean, pretty much leading. And I just, uh, I had a huge crush on her. So like my memory is, is just, you know, that nostalgia of, of, of this crush that I felt, <laughs> that I felt for this actress. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, good times, good times. But it, uh, it does bring me to my favorite part of the show, which is uh, a little segment I like to call gag me with the spoon. So this is where we do our uh, best impression of our least favorite part. So not necessarily a part we didn't like, just something that we didn't like as much. Uh, because that's kind of how I feel about this one. I, I don't really have anything that I dislike about this movie. So I had to like really dig deep and find which one I, I didn't like. Um, and so we'll just be playing at this point. We'll just be playing for uh, bragging rights because uh, <laughs> you won the last time. Uh, but um, So hopefully, uh, I mean, I think you're pretty safe because I still haven't won after 60 something episodes. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, just set up the scene for us and then uh, go ahead and, and um, you know, do your impression. See, I struggled <laughs> with this because there, there's there's not much about it that. I don't like. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess the uh, what I came up with was uh, Chuck and Doris, particularly Doris. I mean, they were the, uh, I guess, the most unlikable characters at the start of the movie. So uh, um, I, I had to pick a line by Doris. I went with, and here's what I went with. Here's the chain of command. The major jumps on me. I jump on you. And there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. <laughs> oh man. And that's but the thing is that's that's still a great line. It's a well-written line. I like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of like me. I, I didn't know what to pick. I finally I think the uh the mall scene, while I love the scene and the firefight and everything, um, after they're captured, I remember being scared when I was little. You know, and really thinking that that you know, uh, you know, some harm was going to come to these, so I uh, I decided to go with uh, one of the lines by Willie, and it's not really that it's a bad line. I think I just uh, the the trauma <laughs> that I, you know, the 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 fear that I felt when I was little just kind of latched itself onto this, and so he says, um, <clears throat> "Let's play a game. It's called Scary Noises," <laughs> uh, and uh, that's my line. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very good, but <laughs> no, that was great. best I could come up with. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. This one was hard. It, it really was hard because the, the whole movie, like you said, it's, it's, it's thoroughly well done. And so it was just, I, I found it very difficult to, to pick anything at all. And there's a few of these throughout the, uh, the episodes I've done that, that have been this difficult, um, maybe two or three that I can think of. And so this was, this was definitely one of them. Cause it, I just, I really like everything. Every it just all just landed so well for me. Yeah, well, and I mean, watching it now, you know, it's got the nostalgia. It it holds up. So yeah, they, it, it, it's just difficult to come up with something that 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 that, that isn't top notch throughout it. But exactly. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I mean, everything from the color schemes. I mean, the, you know, they. They wanted to contrast, you know, the red and the dark of the of the the scientists and everything with like bright colors for the teenagers. And then in, even between the girls, you know, they they consciously made the decision for Reggie to even though she's in brighter clothes are still darker than, you know, Sam's clothes. And, you know, so, I mean, just things like that, um, you know, the, the plane with the motifs. When I thought they said yeah, they uh, the costuming, they they based it on like comic books. They they used you know, comic book color schemes to, uh, you know, get a point, get, get the point across that, you know, here's the good guys, here's the bad guys. And uh, it, it, it that, that's just another, another testament to the amount of thought that really went into the movie. Yeah, completely agree. But it does make me wonder, you know, G.I. Joe, they taught us that uh, knowing is half the battle. <laughs> what do you think the other half is? <laughs> Gotta be Uzis. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's the, you know, if, if Daddy had been there, you got him Uzis. <laughs> you have Uzis, yeah. <laughs> you know, and the fact that that was like an improv line that just blows my mind because <laughs> they did it so well. Um, uh-huh. 
yeah but uh that's that's way better than mine uh <laughs> no mine is uh if knowing is ha- half the battle the other half is closing the vents when a lethal comet passes by <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny U- uzis were so big back then yeah and like they, they they were banned because you know that's what Everybody wanted all the criminals wanted them, all the good guys. Everybody wanted Uzis, <laughs> and um, I, I went through a stretch of years where we we go to uh, the Gun and Knife show quite oh, a bit, uh-huh. and I never saw a real Uzi, but I did have a guy offer me a movie prop Uzi. That's and, cool. Um, yeah, it it looked cool. Um, it had five hundred or five thousand, you know, caps that went with it. Oh wow. and um and the guy he he's trying to sell me on it and I was just I was sold I wanted to get it but <laughs> I think it was like five hundred dollars oh man and, yeah uh, I was gonna have to borrow about four hundred of that from, <laughs> gotcha. from my dad and yeah he uh, he just shook his head yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably smart <laughs> oh man um. Scott, it's been so much fun talking with you. Uh, tell me about your show. Uh, so I, I've got a podcast, uh, Holly Jolly Xmasu. Uh, it's all about Japanese Christmas music. And, you know, it, it's a long road going from collecting Christmas music, to getting into the Japanese Christmas music. And then uh, basically the pandemic got me into the podcasting. And this month will be, April will be one year for me. So. Um, uh, you know, to commemorate one year, I've got, uh, I'll, I'll be covering Jimmy Tech Yuji's album, which if you hear the intro to my show, You've spoken about uh, him. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, um, a version, uh, just a drum heavy version of jingle bells. And that's, that comes from J- Jimmy Tech Yuji. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, I've got a lot of great stuff coming up. Um, I'm working on, uh, trying to fit in some extra episodes with, you know, a little more collaboration interviews and stuff like that. So hopefully I'll have uh, a bit more this year, uh, you know, kind of expanding um, or broadening what I do. Um, but, but on top of that, I've just got some really fantastic albums lined up. So um, yeah, the, there, there's one that I, I won an auction for recently. It's not here yet. But I definitely plan on having you on. Um, yeah, it, for it, sure. <laughs> it will be right up your alley. It, it, I, I don't want to give anything away <laughs> until you hear it. But um, yeah, that should be good. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I'd have to look at my list. Um, I do have an episode of uh, early 70s Japanese boy bands coming up. So Ooh. that that'll be fun. <laughs> That's um, not something you hear every day. <laughs> no, and the fact that you know it's it's all Christmas stuff, and the the one is literally the Japanese Jackson Five. So, wow! <laughs> so that that'll be a fun one to do. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So so a lot of good stuff coming. It's just a matter of uh, you know figuring out my schedule, planning out a bit more. Um, hopefully next year I do plan on having a uh, WrestleMania episode. Um, so that should be a good one. But, um, yeah, it, it's going well. My, you know, my monthly listening is, is up a bit. So reaching a few more people. Nice. Um, I'm hoping with, uh, as I get into my second year, I can, uh, um, you know, hit, hit a few more people and just expose people more to this entirely different culture worth of, uh, um, of Christmas music, which is all extremely well done. I mean, their musicianship is phenomenal on a lot of these i mean they're just they're i mean they're really good <laughs> yeah the uh the 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 jazz the the mood music from the 60s is just fantastic mm-hmm. um there's some really spectacular you know funk and fusion from the 70s um and, and then on top of that there's just some really great pop stuff also um i know the japanese city pop gets a lot of attention nowadays and I'll have a city pop episode at some point. Um, uh, Tatsuro Yamashita, his uh, his song "Christmas Eve" is like the big Japanese Christmas song. I plan on dedicating a whole episode to his album "Melodies," which is where that came from. Um, 
so yeah, there, there's there's some really great stuff. Uh, I've started to pick up uh, covers of Japanese Christmas songs by uh, U.S. artists. So <laughs> I'll, I'll incorporate some of those at some point. But it, it, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've managed to grow my collection quite a bit over the last month or two. So there should be there's some great stuff coming up it's just a matter of uh getting a little more planning and uh having a firmer schedule set up yeah i know how that goes uh i have my ideas mapped out but i don't have my schedule set (laughs) so so i definitely have to uh to sit down and and make a schedule as well Uh yeah so i definitely get that and where can they where can they find you Right now, uh, my uh, my current website is uh, hollyjollyxmasu.libsyn.com. Um, I'm planning on getting just a, a straight domain of my own. I just have not had the time to uh, to do that. Um, but my uh, my my Libsyn site is the uh, the easiest way to get to me. But I'm also I'm on uh, Apple. I'm on Spotify, Amazon. Uh, you can find me on, you know, all the major platforms. Gotcha. And, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I, I, I don't get into Twitter that much. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I don't either. <laughs> the, the bulk of what I send out for, uh, for the podcast is on Instagram. And I'm gotcha. this month. I'm trying to, uh, post an album cover a day just to, uh, show some of the stuff that will be coming up eventually. Nice. Yeah, exciting stuff, and, and as I'm saying, I mean they're they're just they're great musicians, mm-hmm. you know. Whether you like the the genres or not, it, I mean, they're just they're fantastic. So definitely check out uh, Holly Jolly Exmasu. Uh, it's just it's good. It's really good. Thank you. Uh, well, well, thank you for doing it, and thanks for coming on as yeah, well. I, I always have a blast. I'm glad to do it. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. And uh, on that note, I'm going to end it by saying, they said if we breathe this, we can go to the North Pole to see Santa Claus. So check us out on our social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're feeling like Samantha, meaning Danny Mason Keener, leave us a review on iTunes. Not only does it help us reach more people, but you also get a free sticker. Now don't forget to vote. Later, dudes. Hi, this is Scott from Holly Jolly Xmasu, your podcast destination for Japanese Christmas music. If you like Christmas music and are tired of the same old songs, this is the podcast for you. Join me each month as I explore my collection of Yuletide albums from Japan, featuring everything from city pop to 80s rock, long-lost jazz, and psychedelic garage rock. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. It's some of the greatest Christmas music you've never heard. Oh, more than I see is so lean, oh, I so be.